0: Well again, welcome. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. It's uh, great to, to be together and uh, this Sunday also marks the launch of our Shawnee campus and we're excited about uh, them up there uh, doing, doing this same thing, right? Gathered together around this ancient book, uh, continuing to proclaim the, the good news of, of the gospel. Uh, let's pray for us here as well as, as for them and for, for all of our, our campuses. Let's pray together. God, uh, we, we need you. Um, God, we long for you to speak uh, to act uh, in our lives and in our world. God, we're, we are so thankful for our friends. Um, God, our brothers and sisters who have left this place to go and start something new in Shawnee. We pray that you'd be with them. Give them uh, confidence and hope. Give them courage in the midst of uh, challenges. And God, I pray that you would do uh, what you promise to do um, in, in and through your church. God, would you make that happen uh, for them, even, even now in, this, in their space? And God, we pray the same things for us here, for, for all of our campuses, and God, for, for all churches across our, our city and nation and, and world that together gather around your good news and center ourselves upon your word and how it affects our lives. So speak to us now, we pray. Be with us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so here you are at church. First Sunday of the new year, you know, uh, a little snow on the ground, some of you just sort of hoping you haven't made a huge mistake, right? Uh, for, for some of you, I mean, maybe this is your first time here, and that, honestly, that can be scary enough to, to walk into a church for the first time, feel like you're completely out of place, everybody else knows what's, what's going on, and I can tell you from experience that being alone or feeling lonely in church can be one of the loneliest places in the world. Honestly. Uh, and for, for others of you, maybe, maybe it's not just your first time at any church, or at this church, but at your first time at any church in a really long time. I mean, maybe, maybe a really, really long time. You're not even maybe sure you know why you're here. You just want to know two things. How weird is it going to get? And when will you be able to leave, Right? And that's okay. We can handle that. Um, I'm not going to try to answer the weird question um, because weirdness is relative, and so I don't, I don't really know how weird we're going to get. Uh, imagine as bad as it could be, and it probably won't be that bad. Um, and as far as the other question, around 1210, okay? So you, you can make it. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be fine. I promise. Um, but it's, it's intimidating to start going to church, isn't it? I mean, whether, whether you're kind of, kind of a church person or maybe this is just completely brand new to you, it's, it is intimidating to walk into a space like this for the first time. Everybody else seems to know everybody else. Everybody else seems to know how everything works and the things that you're supposed to do and say. And honestly, even at, at first glance, it looks as if everybody else has all of their junk together, right? That, that somehow their lives are somehow put together. You know, we're, we're good at kind of keeping that, that facade, right? It can be intimidating. And honestly, you don't have to be new to feel that way. You can look around and you see smiling faces and happy families and well-dressed, well-behaved folk. Right? Even, your, even your kids know, don't they? The moment you drive into the church parking lot, the arguments pause and the smiles begin, right? The secrets of last night and last week and last year conveniently tucked away truth be told, sometimes I feel like my continual resolution is maintain the image. Keep the profile right. A couple weeks ago, I heard the uh, bizarre and depressing song Dollhouse by Melanie Martinez. And it made me think of us. Sorry. Uh, Let me read the chorus. It says, places, places, get in your places. Throw on your dress and put on your doll faces. Everyone thinks that we're perfect. Please don't let them look through the curtains. So if you are new, especially if you're new to this whole Jesus thing, let me just sort of warn you right out of the gate. You've probably already heard the rumors that, that Christians are hypocrites. Well, that's mostly because we're Hypocrites. We're really good at maintaining our, our image, right, to sort of carve out these, you know, nice smiles and, and to look as if everything is, is fine around us. But on the inside, I mean, who are we trying to kid? I mean, did you, did you see the recent Onion article? Probably not. You're not as weird as me. Um, I love this. Look at the headline. Six-day visit to rural African village completely changes woman's Facebook profile picture. Let that sink in for a second, right? I mean, can you feel that cynicism? I mean, that cuts deep, doesn't it? Because that's that's kind of how we live, isn't it? Uh, We define ourselves based on the images we project, the profile that we're able to create for ourselves. Who are we trying to kid? And I know we're, we're worlds apart from this ancient church in Corinth, okay? Now we've heard the, the start of Paul's uh, letter to them just a, a moment ago. And, and things in many ways couldn't be more different. And yet, that is exactly why Paul is writing. It's as, almost as if with, with his letter, right? These 16 chapters, this letter to the Corinthians. It's almost as if he's saying to them, yes, we know how great you all look. Everybody looks awesome and fine. Yes, we, we realize that, Paul says. And, and honestly, things were going well at their church in many ways. God was at work, showing up, changing lives, just as we see him at work here with, with us. And yet beneath that perfect profile lies a stinking mess. And so Paul cries out to them, and to us, who are you trying to kid? Well, this morning we're going to settle into one place of Scripture for the next six months, 1 Corinthians. It's a letter to a church that's not unlike ours in many ways. I mean, certainly different in, in its own respects, certainly in, in time period and all of that, and yet dealing with many of the same issues that you and I face. And they are at great risk of becoming comfortable. We're calling the series A Beautiful Mess. Because that's kind of us, isn't it? It sort of describes the, the human experience. I, I think of it a little bit like uh, the floor of my son's room. Because uh, so often, you know, it gets to the point where it's so messy you can't even, like, tell what color the carpet is. You know what I'm talking about. Parents, yeah, yeah you, you, you know. Um, but kids... Uh, with my son, that mess is made up primarily of Lego, okay? Uh, which means there's potential there. Like, there's, there's so much possibility, even in the, you know, sort of pervading filth, right? And, and I feel like in some ways, that's, that's what Paul's doing. He's writing this letter to them, sort of as the guide to begin putting those pieces back together again. Because God's not done with them. And, and God has so much more in store for both them and for us. The trouble is... They think they're already a masterpiece. I mean, they're convinced, that they've got to figure it out. They've arrived. Everything's fine and dandy with them. And so Paul, even in these opening verses, he doesn't pull any punches. He tells them essentially three things that we're going to talk through. He says, basically, you are the church. You've got so much going for you, but you are a sneaking mess. Who are you trying to kid? But he he does start positively. If you've got a Bible, if you want to follow along, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right at the the beginning there. Um, Now, now the city of Corinth, I feel like we need to start with a little bit of a history lesson if we're going to spend six months there, right, with these people in that time period. And and the city of Corinth was a major trade city, uh, strategically located, um, so that it was kind of a, a, a... A place of great diversity, right? Uh, People from all all sort of walks of life would end up being there because they're sort of near the the seaport there, um, not too far from Athens. It would have been a very influential and very pluralistic city. Here's a a layout of the city. Uh, These are all the ruins that have been found dating back to the the time of of Paul. Um, A lot, so it certainly would have been a very bustling metropolis, Now, if you're unfamiliar with Paul, he's the guy writing this letter. Um, Paul was a missionary, uh, but he was also a really unlikely convert. In fact, before he met Jesus, he uh, persecuted Christians, even to the point of being responsible for some of their deaths, right? He hated Jesus and his followers and everything about them until he meets Jesus. And from that point, he goes on and he he starts as many as 20 churches. He even started the church there in Corinth, just a handful of years before he's writing this letter. Paul also wrote about a third of the New Testament. And many of you know, I mean, with this whole church planting thing, you guys know how passionate we are about multiplying churches. It's why, as I prayed, we send out 140 people, friends, people that we love and miss, uh, to go and start something new because we believe that God continues to do His work through His churches, the same work that He's done for 2,000 years. Now, just to help us sort of frame the time in our, in our heads, okay, of where we're at um, that way, uh, so Jesus would have been crucified around 30, early 30s A.D., okay? Um, Paul would have planted the church in Corinth uh, around 49 or 50 A.D., okay, so 20 years later, give or take. Um, he, he was there for about a year and a half, uh, as well as a couple of his friends, uh, Priscilla and Aquila, they, they traveled a little bit with him. Another guy named Apollos was really influential there. That'll come out more later uh, as, we, as we go on. But they had a lot of influence. Um, but eventually Paul moves on, right? Moves out of Corinth and he plants now in Ephesus. That's where Paul is now writing this letter from, from the other side of the water. And it's about 55 AD, give or take, when Paul writes this letter to them. So about five years since he's moved on um, from being there they were with them. Now, another little tidbit, again, you know, if you, if you hate history, we're almost through that part, um, but Paul has written another letter to the church there, not just 2 Corinthians, if you're familiar with your Bibles, uh, but this um, is actually, 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter It gets a little confused. We just don't have his first letter, Um, but they're talking about this this other letter. So there's a letter we don't have of Paul's uh, that he wrote to them. So they've had this sort of uh, pen pal relationship. So Paul's written a letter to them and and now they've written back. This all becomes clear as we go. Paul, they talk about these letters. Um, They've written back with a whole host of questions, things that they're wondering about, how they do this and how they handle this and what does it mean to be a Christian in this situation. As well, at the same time, um, Paul's heard a whole bunch of rumors about the church in Corinth, even all the way in Ephesus. It talks about Chloe's people coming there and and hearing all these strange things about what's going on. And so now it's Paul's turn to write again. And he loves them. He spent time with them. But Paul is is pretty upset at what's happening in their church. And so we begin in verse 2 here. Verse 1 is just Paul's introduction of himself. That's how letters began back in that day. In verse 2, he begins by reminding them who they are. He says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So this, this is who they are. I mean, essentially in those opening verses, Paul is reminding them that this, this church thing is bigger than just them. That yes, God has called them locally, specifically to that place, right? There in Corinth, to those people that they are gathered with week in and week out with. God has put them there, and yet they are called together with all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in every place and every time period. And so when Paul says that, he's including us, that that we have this, this unique bond with them by being part of this thing God invented called the church. And the church is God's thing, right? It was his idea, he put it together. And Paul is saying that they have been, we have been called to that thing. Which just as a reminder, it means that there's no such thing as a, as a lone ranger Christian. It, it doesn't work out that way. That according to Paul, for us to live the life we were created to live, we have to live it within spiritual community. People that we, we trust and, and love and know and share, share life together. That if, if you are a homeless Christian without, without a, a church, without a faith community, um, then you're, you're missing it. But together, Paul says, I mean, this, this is who you are, he's saying, and you have so much going for you. It's kind of that middle section of our text. Paul thanks God for them. Uh, he sees all that God has so graciously given them, and he knows that everything good they have is from God. A few examples. Okay, Paul mentions, he says, in in speech and all knowledge, for example. Of course, we're going to see later that they're obsessed with eloquent speech to a fault. um, And they don't have nearly as much knowledge as they think they do. And he also says that they're, they're not lacking in any gift. They have all the spiritual gifts, especially the cool ones. But they are causing loads of problems. We'll see that too. And he says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. There's hope for them. And yet the irony here is that they're not really waiting for anything. And Paul knows it. They're convinced they've arrived, that they're they're already this masterpiece that God intended for them, and that they can just now sit back. And yet Paul says, God God is faithful. And here's the thing, you've got to imagine, you know, being in that local community, right? They've just got a, a letter from Paul. They're excited about it because they, you know, they've had these questions and, and issues and they go way back with Paul. And so they're gathered, right, in, in somebody's home, a smaller gathering than this, most likely. And they're, they're hearing this letter read for the very first time. And I've got to tell you, I'm convinced, even in those words of Thanksgiving, they would have they known what was going on. Because Paul, he is genuinely thankful. I don't want to miss that, that there is good things going on in that church. But with each one of those, he's given them a little bit of a jab. And they would have picked up on it. They knew Paul, right? And they knew the rumors that were being spread around them. And so I imagine them in this moment, even though, yes, they've heard the things that Paul's thankful for, these good things going on, but they're beginning to squirm. And they're beginning to brace themselves for what's next. Because Paul says, yeah, yeah, things are good. You guys have it all together but you're a stinking mess. I mean, right away, right? He jumps right to it in this next section. And he describes all these divisions and quarrels and, and fighting among them. They, just, they cannot possibly get along. And we'll, we'll talk more about this when we get to chapter 3. Paul talks more then and kind of gives us a more picture, bigger picture of what's happening so we won't spend a ton of time on what they're actually fighting about there. Um, but essentially, I mean, the easiest way for us to think about it is like some of them in the church are saying, um, well, Nathan's my pastor. And others are saying, well, Patrick is my pastor, so I'm going to listen to him. And others are saying, well, Tom is my pastor, right? And, and it's just ridiculous. They're arguing about who they should follow and who they should take advice from and, and who's going to, to lead them. And that they just they cannot get along. But you know what? It's only the tip of the iceberg for them. I mean that's, that's the first thing that Paul jumps on right away. It's the most obvious. And but over our six months together, we're going to get a picture of a church that has lots of things hidden in the cracks, lots of skeletons and lots of closets. But like for example, there's a, an incestuous relationship within the church, and they're applauding it. They're proud of it. Look what we allow and that some of, some of the members of, of their church are having sex with prostitutes, while other members of the church don't even think husbands and wives should be having sex. We'll even have a time to be able to talk a little bit about homosexuality. That'll be, that'll be fun, right? Other things that they're, they're dealing with, uh, they're suing each other. Like in the church, their own brothers and sisters in Christ, they're taking each other to court uh, with lawsuits, and, and they are still confused about the rampant, idol worship within their, their civic life. And, and yeah, the spiritual gifts, they've got all of them, but they're using them for self-serving means and, and communion. I mean, th- this to me is like the, the kick-all. It's, it's the one that says, okay, something, something is wrong, as if the rest of them aren't, en- aren't enough. But communion, right? The Lord's Supper. We'll, we'll see that, that the rich are getting drunk on the communion wine and saving none for the, the less, the lessers, the poor using it all up before anybody else gets there. That, that's how far they've gone from saying, this, this is community, this is family, this is God working together in us. And some of them are even denying the resurrection. But you know what? And this, this is really important, because I don't want us to miss this. We'll have time to talk about each of those problems as we go. But their biggest problem isn't their problems. I mean, the church having problems isn't the biggest problem. The church will always have problems, the biggest problem is that they don't even see their problems. They don't recognize it. They, they think they're fine, that they've, they've arrived. They are convinced that they are the masterpiece that God intended for them then, there, and in that moment. And they're bragging about it. We'll talk about that next week. That they're, they're boasting about who they are and, and all of their credentials. But God loves them too much to let them wallow. So Paul says in chapter 4, for example... He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? Get that image, right? Or with love in a spirit of gentleness? It is with tears and outrage that Paul cries out, who are you trying to kid but that's not us, right? I mean, I read those words, and you know, you read all of 1 Corinthians, like this, I mean, we don't don't have all these same problems, although I think we'll all be surprised at how much we do have in common with them and the specific issues that they're wrestling with. But it's so easy for me to say, well, we're we're okay, aren't we? But here's what I'm afraid of. Would we even realize it if we weren't? Because they don't. They're completely blind to the issues that they have. It takes Paul to come in and say, No, these things are are wrong. You're, You're way off base here. Would we even recognize it? Or would we just continue to grow self assured, self righteous, comfortable, and complacent, maintaining our perfect image, right? While inwardly a mess. Everything can look great on the outside. Who are we trying to kid? So as I've wrestled with these words this week, and even as I've thought about not just this passage in particular, but all of 1 Corinthians, if we were to sort of summarize what, what are some of the big lessons that we'll, we'll be able to learn over these next several weeks and months uh, together, three things that jump out at me. Uh, action steps, resolutions, call them, call them what you want. Uh, but these things, these things grab me as I read these words. First, we've got to stop taking credit for the good in our lives. I think that was probably one of their first mistakes, because as soon as we begin to take credit for the good in our lives, the the work that God is doing in us and and through us and and around us, we begin to think that God actually owes it to us, and not just God, but the people around us owe it to us, right, because we're just kind of that awesome, right? But Paul couldn't be any clearer in that middle section, right, that everything good we have is from God, 100% grace, which I've got to tell you is almost impossible for me to grab onto. I mean, I I can say it, I can sort of even cognitively say that I believe it, but man, I love taking credit for this stuff in my life because I'm I'm hardworking and I'm, I'm smart and I have better habits than some people. And I desperately cling to the belief that somehow I've earned it all. And, and when we do that, I mean, it's super convenient, right? Because then we can look down on anybody else, which is great. We love to do that. So it gives an excuse to do that because we, we're so good, right? So we can do that. It also allows us to put God in his place, which let's be honest, we like to do that too. Because if we're that awesome, then God owes us blessings and answered prayer and whatever thing we happen to be, you know, wanting, even legitimate things, right? But now God owes us because we're that great. Um, and and even, even, you know, help makes me think that, well, or it's a reason in my mind that, you know, God loves me, he accepts me um, because I'm just so lovable, right? Because I've got my stuff together, and so why wouldn't Jesus want to die on a cross for me? And besides, what, did it even really take that Right, was my were my sins that bad? We love, I love to take credit for the good things in my life. I mean, even even just think about the advantage we have being born at this time period in this country. I mean, more than ninety nine percent of people who will ever live, right, who have ever lived in the history of humanity, right. And yet we're convinced. I, I like to convince myself that it's because I've earned it. And even, though, even the way we approach Jesus, if you're, if you're a Christian, we may not actually say this, but I think for some of us deep down, we're convinced that we're a Christian because we're just smarter. Right? We, we've we've kind of figured out the answers. Life works better this way. And we, we're convinced of, of the arguments. And, and you may not think that's true about yourself. Right? You may not think that's why going on in your mind but just listen to the way we we talk about those or talk down to those who think differently from us the way the way we treat people who believe other things or or would argue with us or would even seek to to destroy us well paul tells them next week that god chose them because they were more foolish than all the rest or we we point to our good works right We've all got our, our list, you know, things that we've done right and why, why we're better than others and why God ought to, ought to love us. And I mean, we all have that, right? We all have that in our mind, the things that we tell ourselves that, that help us believe that we're actually good enough, right? But Really? You want to go there? We're not that impressed. And Paul's going to tell them next week that actually God chose them because they were weaker than all the rest. You see, religious people take credit for the good in their life. I mean, that's, that's part of what religion is, right? Religion is, is earning. It's sort of proving our, our way before God and, and doing X, Y, and Z so that God has to do A, B, and C, right, for, on, our, on our behalf. That's, that's religion, essentially. The gospel people, Jesus people, I mean, we, we know that we have nothing but Grace nothing to, to offer, nothing to, to recommend ourselves, nothing to possibly make ourselves uh, good enough. I mean, for example, we, I mean, if you are saturated in the good news of what Jesus has done for us, we don't just repent of the bad things that we do, like say we're sorry when we do something wrong. We even repent for the good things we do with lousy motives, right? Which is, honestly, most of the time, isn't it? Because we realize, we see it. All we have is grace Instead of entitlement, gratitude. Stop taking credit for the good in your life. Second, daily admit how far you still have to go. Paul's going to tell them later, essentially, if you, if you think you can stand on your own two feet, uh, watch out, you're about to fall and fall hard. And, and listen, if you, if you think you've arrived there's a good chance that you haven't even started the journey yet. Remember, their their problem wasn't their problems. And as important as as those were, and and certainly Paul will uh, address them, but their biggest problem is their inability to see that they even have a problem. They were just doing fine in their minds. And I think, honestly, we face the same danger. So how do we see the things that we're blind to? Right? I mean, how do we actually do that? Well, I think, I think there are a few warning signs um, that might indicate whether or not we think we've arrived. For example, if, if you don't take your... Uh, if, you, if you take your good works a little too seriously, right, you know, a little bit of this internally or, or externally, a little, little pat yourself on the back, or, or, or if you take your, your sins not seriously enough, you, know, you just think, well, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, some sins, but these sins, you know, are favorites. It's not a big deal, right? There's a good chance that it's because we think we've arrived. Another warning sign would be if, if you think you don't really need anybody, anybody else sort of to, to journey with. And so, you know, church is kind of an optional thing. Community is really not that important. You might be in a community group, but they don't really know you, right? You haven't really let them in uh, to who you are, and you certainly don't, don't need them, right? I've been... Um, I've been reading Lord of the Rings uh, to my kids um, last month or so, and they're, they're five and seven, so that in itself uh, is a journey, let me tell you, um, to read a book like that with them. Um, and, and if you know the story, right, it's about this this great journey, this, this huge quest, this mission uh, to, like, overthrow all evil for all time, right? It's kind of a big deal. Um, and I love this. My, my son, he's, he's the seven-year-old, he keeps asking me... Uh, you know, who's, who's the star of this book? You know, we're like hundreds of pages in and he wants to know who the main character is. And I love that because if you, again, if you know the story, there's not really a good answer to that question. It's because every one of them is involved in this, in this mission, right? And it's necessary for them to, to work together and they know how dependent they are on each other. And they know that not one of them could do it on their own. And yeah, I am so convinced that my life is so different. And my default, honestly, more and more, I feel like the older I get, is isolation. That, that's, that's my default anymore. To withdraw, to hide, uh, to, to pretend I'm something other than, than who I really am. That's, that's what I gravitate towards. If you're not in community, in meaningful relationships with other believers... You've got to find a place. Whether, whether that's a community group and we can help you there. we got a new semester starting in a couple weeks that might begin the process uh, of finding these kinds of relations. We'd love to help you. Um, if you're already in a group, maybe it's just a matter of committing this next semester to actually letting them in, uh, to letting them, them see a little bit of who you are and to, to actually trust them with that and trust them to be able to speak in to your life, the things that you, um, that you need spoken into. One, one more warning sign here. That we might have might think that we've arrived, um, neglecting the, the spiritual disciplines. You know the the old fashioned things like daily Bible reading and prayer and, and solitude. They feel old fashioned, don't they? I mean, in our in our busy, hectic worlds, are the first they're the first thing to go so often in our schedules. But the reality is, if you're not regularly engaged in those things, you won't grow, you won't change. And you will miss out on what God has in store for you. And if that's a, a new idea for you, maybe you've not done that, especially the Bible reading thing. You know, we all sort of pray occasionally. Um, and not that we couldn't do more, but most of us have a little bit more practice at saying, God help me, you know, in the midst of a crisis. But maybe the Bible reading thing, that's, that's kind of, uh, can, can be sort of the scariest. If you're new at that, I'd encourage you to, to join us with our, our Open Here Bible reading uh, you can go to our website and sign up for that. You'll get a daily email, one chapter a day. You can even just have it read to you on your phone uh, if that's easier, a way just to get started. Each of those chapters point to whatever we're, we're preaching that Sunday. You can also pick up a bookmark like this. Uh, they're at both, both doors. Uh, one chapter a day, just to say, yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try this. I'm gonna try to position myself before God's word on a daily basis. If you're not engaged regularly in these disciplines, there's a good chance it's because you think you've already arrived. They're not going to help you, right? You don't really need them. You're, you're, you're okay on your own. I just finished reading a um, fascinating book, New York Times bestseller, uh, The Power of Habit. Honestly, this book just sort of blew me away. Uh, it's all on the, um, the science of, of how we make habits, what happens in our brain, uh, when we live in our habits and when we try to change habits. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating um, to read. In fact, I mean, 45%, according to their, their study, 45% of everything we do on a daily basis is simply the execution of habit, that our brains literally sort of quiet themselves in these tasks around us that we engage in, uh, and we just do them, right? That, that, that much of our life is just habit. And so let me, let me give a simple next step for this week. It's a new year. Maybe it's cliche, but it's not a bad time to pick up a new habit, right? Daily admit how far you still have to go. I mean, that's something I've been thinking about. I'd love to begin to work that into my own sort of, you know, morning prayer ritual, even part of my own lingo back to God to start my day. God, I just, I need you. And don't let me forget that I need you. To just daily say that I'm dependent, that I, I can't do it on my own, that even though I think I can do it on my own, I'm I'm pretty well convinced I can live my life the best on my own. To say, God, no, I I know that's not true. I encourage you, begin begin every day. Maybe that's maybe that's a thing for this year. Begin every day. Lord, I, I need you. I can't do it without you. And finally, the third thing here. Pray that you be loved enough to get slapped. Because I mean, that's kind of what Paul does here, you know. He just he just smacks them right across the face, and he's going to continue to do that out of out of love, right? Out of out of really grace and mercy to them, and yet he's he's not gonna he's not gonna beat around the bush with them. A, a few weeks ago, uh, for example, uh, my wife Kelly threw out her back for the first time. So that was crossed that off the list, I guess. Done that, um, and she also had her first experience with muscle relaxers, which was kind of fun. Um, as, the, as the observing party, you know, watching my wife just a little bit on the loopy side. And she was here first service, so she knows I'm talking about her. She gave me permission to do this. Um, but as her, her first experience with it, and the very first one she took, you know, she just like falls asleep on the couch for hours, you know. And I'm, I'm sitting over there working because she still can't hardly move around very well. And um, she gets up really fast and starts to, to walk, um, stops in the middle of our living room, and says, Nathan, I'm going to pass out. So I, I get up and, you know, run over to her. I thought about ignoring it, but like, okay, given the circumstances, she might act, because you know, well, anyway, um, people say things, um, but I took it seriously. I ran over there, and I grabbed onto her, right, and I started trying to talk her out of it. You're fine, you're going to be all right, just, you know, focus, you'll be, you'll be good. Uh, and she looks up at me, her eyes get huge and fiery and then completely empty behind them while she's still staring at me. And I can no longer hear her breathing at all. And she was breathing pretty heavy at that point and nothing. So I panic, right? I'm I'm beginning to to lay her down on our our living room floor. And I'm literally, I mean, this is not an exaggeration. I'm not making this up. I am literally, as I'm lying her down, doing the math in my head of what's faster, calling 911, or dragging her out to the car and driving to the ER myself. Freaking out, Okay. and she, she gets down on the floor. It's still nothing. I still can't hear her breathing. I'm yelling at her, honestly. Um, and this, to this me, is like one of the scariest moments. Eden's upstairs, right? I had no idea what to do. I just start smacking her right in the face. I've never, I've never before hit my wife, I assure you. But that afternoon, she had it coming. And... It woke her up. She looks up, you know, totally confused. has no idea where she is or what's going on or why her face hurts. Um, <laughs> any of those things. The point is, pray that someone would love you enough to slap you once in a while. When you need to be slapped. When you're completely blind to who you are or to the circumstances around you, when you, just, you can't even see it anymore. Pray that there be someone in your life who loves you enough to shake you out of it. Say, no, that's, that's, not, that's not right. That's not the way we should do this. That's, that's not the way we ought to live. Pray that you'd have that kind of person. Because that's what, that's what Paul does. And it hurts. But when it's life or death, what's a little pain? I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you. As we take our time working through these 16 chapters, it's going to hurt a little bit. I hope, hopefully it'll be encouraging. Like there's a lot that we can be encouraged about and celebrate of what God is doing here, as well as what He did there so long ago. But it's it is going to hurt. In our temptation, my temptation, when God confronts me, you know, when I, when I read something in here that I don't like, or that doesn't fit with my habits or my own you know self expression or or culture or, or any of those things, my temptation is to just, just kind of sweep it away. Right? Say, so, well, that
1: wasn't talking about me,
0: right? That was meant for somebody else. That's so easy to do, isn't it? For every one of us, regardless of, of your faith commitment, regardless of what you tend to believe, it's so easy to just completely discard God's rebuke. And we do the same thing in the people around us, right? Even the close people, when they, they come to us and actually have the guts to, to call us out on our messes, our temptation again is, you don't know me. What gives you the right to speak into my life? What, why, why can you possibly say that we so quickly fight against any sense of rebuke? But if we know Jesus, if, we, if we've actually met this God who rescues, if we are gospel people so saturated in the good news of his love and acceptance in our lives, then we run towards rebuke. We run towards it. And we actually pray that there would be people in our lives that know us well enough, that, that we trust well enough, who trust us well enough, who can actually slap us out of it when we need to be slapped, who can actually shake us around a little bit and say, no, don't go that way like, like Paul does for them. Who are we trying to kid? I love how Paul summarizes this in verse 17. It's the last verse of our section here this morning. Let me, let me read it for us in the message. He says, God didn't send me out to collect a following for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric on my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. Paul doesn't want us to miss the powerful action at the center. Everything. Christ on the cross, and I mean, did you notice that in these first nine verses, Paul mentions Jesus 10 times, actually 24 times if you count every word for Jesus in those nine verses. It's because we we cannot possibly do this on our own, and even when it hurts, and even though you and I are going to continue to blow it, there, there is so much hope here. I mean, even the fact that Paul writes to them, shows us that there's is, there is so much hope here. You and I, we don't always have to live such dollhouse lives. We, we don't have to continue to spend so much of our lives trying to maintain that perfect profile. Jesus has come, God himself, to rescue us, and that is, that is everything for Paul. That he, he gave his own life, he died on a cross to begin putting those, those, the pieces back together, the messes in our lives, the big ones, the small ones, the ones around us and the ones within us. And he intends, because he rose from the dead, he intends to make something beautiful out of us, out of, out of, out of me, a masterpiece for his glory, for all who come to him in faith. Our God is not finished with us yet. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful that you haven't given up on me. God, I feel so inadequate to even say those words. And yet you persist. You continue with your grace and your forgiveness. God, with your love and your faithfulness, just as you did for them. God, you do that for us. God, I pray that you would forgive me, forgive us for the ways we so quickly become complacent and self-centered. How easy it is to think that you and everybody else owes us when we have declared war against you. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have come, that you have made a way to bring rescue and wholeness and forgiveness and life, real life, true and actual joy and meaning into our lives. God, I pray that we would get a glimpse of that even now and that you would grab hold of us and help us to know and to experience your goodness. God, for those those here who, um, maybe this is a new experience uh, to be at church this morning or, or an experience they haven't had in a really long time, God, I pray that you would especially reach out to them. God, I pray that they would see that you are here and help us to be a community that loves all the people around us. Be glorified, Lord Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.